We get better and better sequencing, and it's becoming less and less invasive, and frankly, the costs go down. We're talking about being able to do NGS for $500 to $1,000 within a few years, and here in California, we're passing a bill so insurance has to carry it. I think that should be nationwide, because that ultimately will make care better, cheaper, faster for everyone. As we're doing that, we can understand what the satellite of potential driver mutations, what the causes genetically are for the cancer, and treat it with the appropriate medicine so you can hit all of them at once. That's amazing. Yeah, if there's more than one engine driving this thing, shut off both the engines. Did you know there's something called the hedgehog pathway, which is really just used to develop yourself when you're like a young fetus and, and embryologically to help you grow, but that that tool sits on the shelf in adulthood and sometimes is picked up by a cell to make it cancerous? What if we could attack a tool that's otherwise not used by most of your body? Are the side effects much better since you won't have basically a target on something that's being used elsewhere, like your hair or like in your stomach with nausea vomiting? We sit down and talk about it with Dr. Hood, who basically tells us all the new novel, innovative ways we can treat cancer with a good quality of life and the new ways we can hopefully avoid chemotherapy and use oral therapies to help treat cancer for a long time. Oh, I mean, ultimately, I get to live the dreams, huh, Jay? I'm trying... For my living, I help patients live longer and feel better. I want to innovate, develop new therapies that really change people's lives. And it's been incredibly rewarding. I've had the opportunity to be quite successful in that. And what made you, I mean, was there an impetus, like if you don't mind my asking, with a personal story or something that you had where you're like, this is neglected or is it just a band-aid? Like what really, how did you find that place? And clearly you're very passionate about it for the last you know, a significant part of your career. Well, you know, growing up, I was, I was part of a big family in East Texas. Uh, it was three older brothers, my mom and my dad. And unfortunately, other than me, most of them were smokers. So they were both, uh, I had I lost a mom and a brother to lung cancer. And I lost another brother and my dad to heart disease. And going through that with them when I was still relatively young, before I got my PhD, I saw what the standard of care was. And frankly, it just wasn't good enough. And I felt like, I could do things to make it better. And I think what you're alluding to is really this concept that I hear, I actually heard today in my clinic, is this concept of, am I just kind of, and I hate that it sounds so almost insensitive, but am I kicking the can down the road and barely limping along? Like, if that's the reason, you know, then, and then I don't know that I want to pursue therapy, which is totally reasonable. But we know that cancer today is not necessarily just like, give you enough poison so that you just basically are staying alive and barely controlling the disease. Like, and it sounds like maybe if you didn't see it to that extreme, you did see how even the time that you're getting, maybe the quality was compromised and the gains or returns didn't really seem that remarkable, the re which is the reason maybe for this kind of like, you know, feeling that a lot of people that aren't directly related in oncology still have, you know, out in the everyday world. That's exactly right. Um, my mom passed away in the mid-90s, and my brother was in the early 2000s. At that point, it was purely cytotoxic therapy, and both of them had lung cancer, which you know, in that time frame, was, was terrible. 200,000 people diagnosed a year, and very, very few survived a year and a half. And now, due to innovations, it's gotten so much better. With uh, I think the anti-PD-1s, the immuno-oncology has changed it. So now 20, 30% minimum of those patients have a long-term survival. They are in a long-term remission. EGFR inhibitors, precision meds, the same sort of thing. That standard of care has dramatically changed. Overall, if you look in the United States, roughly 1.8 million people are diagnosed every year. And over the last 20 years, there's been a steady 2% improvement in survival every year. So now, out of the 1.8 million people, yes, 600,000 people die, which is tragic, but that means 1.2 million people are living. We're doing better, and I think we're at the cusp of doing dramatically better. We're gonna make this a disease that can be treated.
we're we're getting there. We really are. It's it's an incredibly exciting time to be alive. It is, and I'm really glad you said that. And I just want to hit that point harder. EGFR and other targeted therapies in lung cancer. The thing that I still see today, not even locally, but what I hear about, like you know, on my social media, is we went to the ER. There was a lot of cancer in multiple places, and somehow somebody felt that like this looks like a lung cancer, which is probably correct. But it, you know, I think we need to consider hospice because it's pretty far gone. And that really hurts me because people like you out on the West Coast are doing all this innovative, you know, these innovative things to help like move cancer forward. And people are still losing opportunities to even use the meds that have been so groundbreaking, right? So with non-small cell lung cancer, especially adenocarcinoma, and especially if somebody's a non-smoker or, or stopped decades ago, it doesn't matter how bad the disease is unless you know somebody literally has days you have upwards of a 20 percent one in five chance of having a target that we can precisely hence targeted therapy precision therapy attack with an oral pill that can oftentimes make all the disease melt away now is it forever not yet but can it give you an, a year or a year and a half plus of really gaining all your weight back and giving you a good quality of life versus not getting a biopsy, not running the targeted mutations, and passing away in a pretty unforgiving way because metastatic lung cancer is un so unforgiving otherwise. So that, number one, is, I think, somewhere, if you have some insight after you're done making all these amazing drugs and companies, onto how do we actually make sure the delivery of the things that we've done in cancer actually reach everyday people, right? Not an academic center, not like at an institution, but just everywhere because there are a lot of things that go unused. And that, that hurts me, you know, tragically. Yeah, well, thank God your patients are lucky to have you, Sanjay, because ultimately that is the biggest issue. You have to have the right physician and the, the person willing to look. Ultimately, the things are changing so rapidly, though. So five years ago, we started doing genomic sequencing to understand what mutations are driving the cancer. Foundation one was the first that, but that required a biopsy. Just over the last two or three years, we got more and more liquid biopsies, so you don't have to have an invasive surgery to pull part of the cancer out of your lung. You can just do a blood draw. And based on that, you can understand, okay, this is the mutation likely driving my cancer, and this is the treatment. What I think is the next step is realizing it doesn't necessarily have to be lung cancer versus colon cancer versus prostate. It's all based on the mutation. So if you have a, uh, a RAF mutation, Yes, RAF inhibitors are approved in colon cancer, but if you only have a RAF mutation, it's lung cancer or prostate, that's probably the right drug for you. Because cancer really doesn't care where it originates, it only cares what the mutation that drives it is. If you can block that mutation, you can pull the cancer up by its roots and you can have just marvelous clinical outcomes. For sure. And I think that applies definitely to, to a lot of cases. I wish it was everyone, so that's yet to be determined. But you touched on two very big points. And that is, when we're going to precision therapy, we're talking about what is the driver? What is the person that revs that engine up to sixth or seventh, seventh gear and makes that thing propagate in an unregulated way? And what we're learning is there are mutations, that driver mutation, that basically if we can neutralize it, then that propagation cannot happen. And that is precision and targeted therapy. And it uses a term that I'm very excited about that I don't think is in mainstay yet, but the term is tissue agnostic. What does tissue agnostic mutation or driver mean? That means that it does not matter. The way we always look at cancers and still do all the time is histopathology. What that means is you take a piece of the tissue, you throw it on a slide, you stain it, and you say, it looks like adeno, it looks like squamous. And that was important because for whatever reason, like an adenocarcinoma in the colon may not behave the same way as an adenocarcinoma in the lung. So it was very important 
for the tools we had, which was cytotoxic chemos, the, the poison-ish chemos that people think about. Now we're realizing, yo, it doesn't really matter what's on this like slide as far as the histopathology goes. It's more because now we're at a molecular level. We're not looking at the, at the, at the conglomerate of cells, but inside to actually look at the pieces and, and all the switches, we're like, whoa, it gives me goosebumps still thinking about it. We can actually stay with we target. It doesn't matter what it is, it can respond. That's right. And that's amazing. Yeah, that's correct. And, and the really nice thing is I feel like we're getting into an area where you'll get a bifurcation. If you present with cancer, you do NGS, you do genomic sequencing, I should say. If you have one or two mutations, then hopefully we will have developed a precision med that can go after the thing that's causing the cancer, block it, get a great outcome for the patient. If you have a lot of mutations, hey, immuno-oncology works well for you then. Because if you have a lot of mutations, the cancer doesn't look like self and your immune system will react to it. So that is the bifurcation I want. And I hope we can get to a point where the only reason you need chemo or cytotoxic agents is to shrink the margins before a surgery. Right. That is not gonna be the standard of care five or 10 years from now. It's just gonna be precision med and immuno-oncology. That's what we're driving there for. There are a lot of people, no pun intended, driving for. Maybe we should pick a different term. <laughs> but um, yeah. but well, there's a, th that brings a great point. And you know, that's, that's neoadjuvant therapy. So like you said, cytotoxic chemotherapy makes sense when you gotta do kind of the massive shotgun approach to reduce it down because it is life-saving. If you can shrink something down yeah. to, to get it to a place where it's curable, and then you can take out that whole you know, breast or that, you know, whatever that may be, that would be ideal. But a lot of experts such as yourself, the leaders in, in innovation and cancer care do say it won't be necessarily like one drug, but exactly like you said, it's going to be all the chess pieces and strategies to attack it from behind and above and through, you know, behind the glasses, everywhere you can think of, even in a video game, how do I, how do I dismantle this, you know, boss at the end of the stage? That's how you attack in all the weak spots. And when you do combination therapies, that's what the experts say. They're like, it may be, some experts say, like we treat like HIV, right? It was so scary. And now you have a, a drug that's basically a combination of three or four. And as long as you take it, there's no detectable HIV virus. So some experts say, when you have a combination, immune therapy, let it, let's enable the immune system to see this really ugly, dirty mutation thing that's like a dirt ball that you want, dust ball that you want to swipe away. Let them recognize that. But at the same time, let's go ahead and attack that Achilles heel that we know is the reason that it's got its like strength. So that's, that number one is super exciting. And number two, what we are learning is it's not just the driver, but there's a lot of things like I gave in the example of lung cancer where it works, it works, it works. You know, somebody that say, Sanjay, you said a year to year and a half, but then why does it stop working? We're starting to recognize the escape mechanisms. Now, what that means is, bro, I don't need that driver anymore. I like, I understand that I don't need it. I'm gonna find a way to get, to, to basically outsmart and get out of this. Well, we're seeing because of trials, because of research, because of sequencing, these escape mutations, when we see them at a high frequency, not only are we treating it retrospectively because now this thing has escaped and now you're trying to attack basically a new cancer or a variant, everyone seems to know that term because of viruses, but you have a variant of the original cancer. What if instead of retrospectively or retroactively, we could go prospectively and already be accounting for the escape mechanisms? And that goes back to the multimodality, you know, combined therapy. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because there's, there's a couple of different ways you can have escape mechanisms. You can have, to give a, uh, an example, you can have a single muta mutation, like in chronic myeloid leukemia, you have BCR ABLE as a mutation that drives virtually all of that disease. But you have some BCR ABLE mutations, Gleevec doesn't work for it. 
So in that small percentage, two or 3% of the patients who respond to Gleevec, they can escape through that. Alternatively, you can have a whole different mutation, which is something that occurs more in solid tumors that takes over the role as the driver mutation. And as we get better and better at sequencing and it's becoming less and less invasive, and frankly, the cost go down. I, um, you know, we're talking about being able to do NGS for 500 to $1,000 within a few years. And here in California, we're passing a bill so insurance has to carry it. I think that should be nationwide because that ultimately will make care better, cheaper, faster for everyone. As we're doing that, we can understand what the satellite of potential driver mutations, what the causes genetically are for the cancer, and treat it with the appropriate medicine so you can hit all of them at once. That's amazing. If you know, there's more than, yeah, if there's more than one engine driving this thing, shut off both the engines. That's right, and that's the beauty of being able to use multiple therapies that are targeted as opposed to chemo. So eventually, you, you just can't use too much poison to a, to a degree. Again, it works, yeah. it's effective. Once we don't have targeted mutations, it's the best thing we have. It can be very effective, especially in small cells, right, with platinum. It's, it's very, you know, side reductive. It really makes it disappear 85% of the time. But when you can use these targeted therapies, it, it, it's really just a home run. Um, I had a point. Oh, and I will say to your point about the state and, uh, and approve it, Louisiana is one of the first, I think, two or three states, if not the first, but at least one of the top three that actually did approve it. So it has to be covered, this next gen sequencing, because that molecular is everything. Now, what doesn't happen as much, because there's really no guidelines, and maybe it's because it costs so much, is when do we, and I do it, because I, I always think of it because of people like you who teach me and, and remind me about how important it is to recheck the uh, genomic sequencing, right? A lot of times patients get it once at the beginning, tumors have outsmarted something that they were on and you're running out of options. That is a time to say, I got to see what I'm dealing with here. That's why the virus vaccines change for flu and for, for COVID even all this stuff, because you, become, you, get a, you get a cousin or something that's a variant to what is there before, so you need to know the new variant's properties. That's, you're 100% you're correct. And you know, not to keep coming back to the liquid biopsies, I think that's gonna make it easier and easier. You know, it's not that easy to get a section of tumor from a lung cancer patient. It just isn't. It's very simple to get a blood draw. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's what I use. I, you know, I use the, the blood test because it'll, it'll identify, and then if you use the same company, or even if you don't, you can see what have been new. What are the new driver mutations we know and have therapies? A lot of times these companies will give you basically the targets that, that attack that mutation. So they kind of do the homework yeah. for you. And then you mentioned patients, and that has to bring me to the story on how we met. So I have a, just a tragic case that I inherited that um, has, she's 30, maybe four, 35 years old, and has colorectal cancer and it's stage four. And a lot of times people do mistake rectal cancer to be hemorrhoids, it's very easy, especially in your 30s. And it's not just the patient, but it's, a, it's doctors, because unfortunately, a lot of medicine, large part due to cost, is statistic probability, statistical probability. So, you know, it's just unlikely a 30-something-year-old has rectal cancer. Well, this patient, unfortunately, is stage four. And with, unfortunately, with colorectal cancer, there just aren't a lot of good options after the first or second line. Second line, let's just say. Third and fourth just get, get murky. She obviously has young kids. I'm very close to her. I've been taking care of her for years now. And I basically was like, I got to unturn every stone, right? And so I use, um, and there's different companies out there, but I use X-Cures because X-Cures looks at all of that genomic sequencing. And then they actually not just use artificial intelligence to see if there's any kind of trial out there that may apply to your patient, in this case, a 39-year-old patient of mine, that's stage four. But it also uses like human, you know, basically to make sure that it makes sense, right? So there's not false hope. And then she had a mutation 
that is a tissue agnostic mutation, if I understand correctly. And I'm very excited because her second line chemo is actually working. But a good oncologist or a good doctor always like has the next step and the step after that planned. You don't want to you don't want to get there and then be like, okay, now what? You want to already have a have a plan. And because I have such good control with my systemic disease, if I can find a driver mutation or, or targeted therapy that can keep her alive and well and under remission nicely, then I can go back to my, you know, chemotherapy. So tell me about this patch mutation and kind of what you're seeing, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So Patch one is part of a signaling pathway called the hedgehog signaling pathway, which in and of itself has got kind of a interesting um, background. It's, it's very important developmentally. It's not that important in adults except for tumor formation, which uh, it's really well known to be a driver mutation for basal cell carcinoma, but most BCC basal cell can just be surgically removed, excised, it's a skin cancer. And that's what the drugs were originally developed for. Well, what we found based on genomic sequencing and all of this influx of data over the last four or five years is roughly two and a half percent of all cancer patients have that as a driver mutation. And it comes across all different types of cancer. So that's 40,000 patients a year just in the United States. So there's a lot of patients that have this. And uh, the distribution is such, I think in colorectal, it's roughly 8% of all patients. Endometrial, it's around 6%. So you can go all the way through. There's a fair number of patients that could really benefit from it. So when we found that data, we brought in a drug from Lilly that was best in class based on over 200 patients that they had tested in nearly all basal cell, but they decided not to develop just because basal cell is a relatively small market. They didn't think of what we did. There's a lot of other patients, 40,000 patients potentially a year that could really benefit from this drug. So um, we just started the clinical trial earlier this year, and we've got scans back from the first patient and they look great and we're looking forward to getting more. So when we saw, the, heard about the patient that you have, this is, you know, you, you I, I hate to use the word dreaming cancer because you dream no one has cancer, but as far as patients go, this is the perfect case. This is a clear driver mutation for a patient that is otherwise in pretty good shape. She's obviously had good standard of care. She's healthy. She will be able to go on to drug and stay on drug, hopefully long enough for it to have a really profound benefit. We know this pathway is responsible for certain forms of cancer. But at BCC, it's also true for roughly one quarter of medulloblastoma, brain disease that affects about 200 people a year. Like you said, hedgehog is something that you really is relevant to development, right? Embryologic, when you're like, you know, in the you know, basically fetus and you're growing. But outside of that, that's basically how the human body is. It, it, it differentiates, it grows, the central nervous system, for example. That's why kids usually, if they get a spinal cord or brain injury, like, or seizures, you know, febrile seizures, they don't have long-term sequela because the CNS system is still developing, right? It's still differentiating. And then eventually things get frozen. And so hedgehog is one of those that really, again, in differentiation and growth matter, but then when you're in adulthood, it's really not used that much. It's not a tool, but it hangs around and somebody gets it off the shelf or, or, or basically turns it on. And all of a sudden it, it's like, it's like that little part of a fetus, you know, it sounds silly, but really it just starts growing because it's, it's, it's a mature cell that got a part it wasn't supposed to have. Now, this is an important point about when things that may make sense. And if you want to call it, you know, divine or celestial, you know, uh, respect or whatever, is that what we think we know we don't, we will not assert unless we know with like trials and research, but one would think that if hedgehog is not something that's very active in our everyday life, that the side effect profile for patch one would not be as big as maybe some other mutations that we have therapies for that are used even in our cells all the time. 
how does the side effect profile look? Does that make sense? And again, this is the importance of theory, right? Versus evidence-based. Like we obviously like the evidence will show it whether because we're just humbled all the time in science. But but I, I if I recall correctly, side effect profile isn't something that's like dropping your counts like a lot of treatments do, or or causing bad mucositis like some of the targeted therapies do. Correct? It's mostly you know symptomatic stuff. Yeah, that's spot on. So. Developmentally, if you're an embryo, it's really important for skeletal growth and neuronal growth. As an adult, our skeletons are mature. Our brain, we're there. That's what's cool. I read the side effect profile and I was like, this is just like, it will keep her a mother with her young kids and not, you know, cause this profound fatigue and weight loss and all this other stuff that this multi-agent chemotherapy has been doing with good control. Can't tell she has cancer looking at her, but, but, but that's why it's so important to me because unfortunately today I can't cure her of this, but I want to give her the best quality of life for as long as possible. And this kind of satisfies two strategies. It's like a side effect thing. And it's also, you know, something that can and let me use the few things I have left until, and you never know what day or what week something new will come out. That's the world we live in. But until those come out, I don't have a lot of options. I mean, ultimately you look at something like chemo. Chemo blocks proliferation of any rapidly dividing cell, which cancers obviously do, but so do the cells in your GI, which is why you get mucositis, diarrhea, nausea, et cetera. That doesn't occur for patch one or a lot of the, other targeted therapies either i'm just so excited i think i believe you know she's getting started very soon if not already so i, I can't wait to see how that uh comes about so is there anything else that you're looking at that is kind of this more tissue agnostic or extrapolation of okay it works here should it work somewhere else what else is kind of like on your personal radar about something you're excited about yeah so there's a couple other trials we're doing we're actually using the same um agent that we're using in cancer for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis ipf because it's important and some of the wound remodeling processes it's almost developmental during long-term wound remodeling so i think that can really change outcomes there too and we also have some preclinical programs that are targeting other pathways that are precision based so there is a um, autophagy is one is an anti-autophagy drug so autophagy just as an internal recycling program. So if you get rapid proliferation like you have in a cancer, that winds up requiring intense recycling of nucleotides and peptides inside the cell. And if you can block it on a really rapidly proliferating cell, you can have good outcomes. And in this program, what we found was for patients who have a pair of different mutations, either STK, RAS, or both, which as you may know, is the yeah, same prognosis in lung cancer. This drug it's works it's a single worst prognosis in lung cancer. Uh, right. Immunotherapy doesn't work. Chemo doesn't work. The long-term survival is the that is the worst set of mutations. So the unmet need is high, and this drug works very, very well. And that's just in lung cancer alone. I think that's around 15, 20,000 patients a year. There's also a subset of CRC. So it turns out that by going weirdly enough, by going after the most aggressive forms of cancer, this drug works best. And we're developing that right now and hope to start those phase one clinical trials by the end of next year. That's amazing. So basically it, it allows something, it's like a growing boy needs, you know, growing teenager needs their sleep and their nutrition, right? In high school and all sports. It's basically saying, I know you need those things. I'm going to block your ability to have those things. And but, but whereas the kid will still be a fine, like this is actually like the key to its growth and like spread and basically starves to death to, to a degree. So it's not damaging the inside or causing you know self-destruction, but it's just starving something that otherwise needs a lot of nutrition. That's exactly right. That's a good summary. Interesting. Well so that's 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 neat, and that's a good point too. You're just full of 
good points. No wonder you're so wildly <laughs> successful. That, you know, I, that's one of the kind of pros and cons when I'm talking about small cell lung cancer or a high-grade uh, lymphoma, like um, diffuse large B cell or one of these scary ones. I'm like, you know, it's a silver lining. It's like, number one, it's aggressive. And I'm like, I'm going to say this, but, you know, but, but bear with me. It's, it's, it's the aggressive kind. It's one of the most aggressive kinds of lung cancer, for example, or, or, or lymphomas. But I'm like, but unlike something that's less aggressive, the fact that it is aggressive because of replication so fast, even with chemo, it works much like better or have a higher chance of working. But, but more than that, it melts it away quickly. Whereas things that turn over slowly, if like when that whole like, you know, the things that used to kind of uh, those wheels that turn in the water, I forget what kind of mechanical <laughs> thing, you know, I'm sure one of my college professors is mad at me for not remembering. But if it takes forever and the process requires it, it's just going to take longer to, to work. And then you can't really get down to the last cell. But then things that go really fast and are aggressive at first, it's like, oh, my gosh, that's an aggressive. And you're already, you know, very sick or like it's 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 decreased your quality of life. You can expect usually a much more prompt response and it melts away it's scary until you get there those couple of weeks but uh but it can take down a lot very quickly and one of the things we look for when we do these things for aggressive stuff is called tumor lysis syndrome so it's very important if you know anybody with an aggressive cancer um you want to get labs you know fairly frequently after it starts working because inside the cell are things that can cause problems one of them being potassium that potassium can get high because it was necessary in all the cells and you can have heart arrhythmias you can have basically uh surrogates for what's called uric acid like the gout stuff and ldh when those start going sky high then the kidneys can get damaged so that's why we like to usually give like fluids and like really kind of be very you know cautious after that first cycle and then by the second cycle if it worked you can usually tell the lymph nodes get smaller patients feel better then you've cyto reduced or knocked down that cancer by you know 90 percent or whatever it may be don't quote me on that but but then you don't have as much like tumor to kill because it's, it's responded so fast actually now i'm curious is that something that's that is it that fast and effective to block or starve out those cells or is it a little bit it seems like it probably not be not be that you know calamitous that's exactly right it isn't that calamitous because you're actually kind of starving it out, taking away the nutrients. It's more of a gradual process as opposed to just keeping right. everything dividing. It, it's, it's much easier on the, um, on the host because it kills the tumor slowly. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Gosh, this is so interesting. All of this is so interesting. I could talk to you forever and pick your brain. <laughs> Excellent. Well, is there anything else you want to share, either socially, personally, something exciting? I think the tips or the takeaways from this episode are next genomic sequencing, mutations, like genome, molecular, all those terms mean basically the same thing. Let's look at the specific parts and not so much the slide. And that is really just an absolute necessary in every stage four cancer. And what our hope is, and that's why in stage three lung cancer, that's EGFR positive, we actually check it, we sequence it because we know if you have EGFR mutation, which is about 15% of, of adenocarcinoma of the lung, we know that the standard of care, which is immune therapy, if you get immune therapy for a year to decrease your chance of recurrence, if you had chemo and radiation for cure, if you had an EGFR mutation, then your toxicity is going to get worse. So that so it's already like molecular is starting to trickle into not just stage four, but even into stage three settings, uh, as well as colorectal, when we kind of figure out what we're going to do after the curative approach, those things matter. So one takeaway, sequencing, sequencing, sequencing. We won't even know what to target or, or explore these drugs that Dr. Hood is doing for all of us. You should get letters every day. You don't. You're going to get one from me now. <laughs> but the, you can't do your job without like even knowing you know, these behaviors and, and, and making these observations. 
And then number two, I would say like be humbled, even like for the medical you know world, it's just like hang in there, be humbled. Know there's a lot out there. I'm learning every day, and I consider myself a pretty good oncologist. Uh, so it's always worth exploring, you know, and and getting opinions and not being told. If you get told, just you know, on a prelim or a pathology, you know, this looks bad. You should think of hospice. Obviously, we both know there's a lot more than what people may realize that's available for treatments, and. What would be the third takeaway? Clinical trials. That's how we learn if these drugs work. That's why my patient's so excited about it. Is is we can't make things happen and available unless we know they work. And that what goes back to the theory and the humility of theory as much as we think we understand things to having the evidence to know that that's how it happens. That's exactly right. And if you are a patient, I think a clinical trial is your best chance of a great clinical outcome comes when you get into a clinical trial. Because not only do you get the latest and most cutting edge medication, but quite often you'll get additional care as well. You'll get additional diagnostics, you'll get an oncologist nurse that the, spot, the company like mine will take care of. Your hand will be held and your outcomes will be better. So I think it behooves the patients to get on a clinical trial if they're appropriate for the clinical trial. Um, you know, I, there's a lot of mythos, which I'm, I'm sure you do great with your patients on getting them off of it on clinical trials that patients need to understand. If, if there's a standard of care that works, you won't be denied that. You won't go into a placebo. You either, if there's, if you've already failed standard of care, you could just be on the new drug. But if there's a standard of care that works, it'll be their standard of care plus or minus a drug. Either way, you're going to get taken care of. So please get on the trials, tr give yourself the best chance, give your family the best chance, give your oncologist that relief that, hey, my patient has a great chance to live. Yeah, and because there's a science to it, you know. Amen. And going back to that inertial stuff about these inertial kind of thoughts, like, oh, you're kind of kicking down the can. That's one That's one warranted. It's a warranted inertial kind of misconception because it was that way, right, when yeah. we just had cytotoxics. Another inertial one is, is the guinea pig concept, which, like, there was a time with, like, when the phase one trials, right, at the beginning were happening, for cytotoxic chemos, which are poisons, those phase ones were like, can somebody like live if we give this to them, right? That was a different world than targeted therapies, which a lot of the trials are stuff that we already know works in one tumor and we're just using it in another one. Or we already know that this pathway really well because it's molecular and we're just like testing the theory. It's, it's a lot different and my heart goes out for those times. But these phase ones and then and especially the phase two, now does it work? We know it's safe. It's just not the same concept that I think still perpetuates a lot today, but we also need to respect it. Like, I can respect why, but I hope anyone listening to this is going to say, okay, I understand. Like, these trials aren't what, they're not these, like, kind of just, you know, literally U tree, right? The U tree has, the, that's one of the chemos that we use with tag yeah. We just took it and we, like, you know, it sounds barbaric, but, and it worked, but it's just not like that anymore. I'm, I'm sure there's a couple of dollars and quarters that go into really having to design these things and you're not picking them up off the tree. No, you're so, that was so well said. By the time the drug actually reaches the patients, millions, probably tens of millions of dollars have already gone into evaluating the drug to prove that it is safe and efficacious. And this, it's a different world. It's not like it was 30, 40 years ago. And with people like you, Dr. Hood, that's bringing it available to us. Oh. So thank you so much for being here, for educating us, myself. If somebody is interested in a clinical trial, is there a way to, like, is it ever mostly in the drug development? Or is it something that, like, they have to go, they can go directly to get evaluated? How does that work? Well, if you're in, well, it depends. Obviously, if you have a patch one loss function mutation, I would go to our website and they can, we can actually direct you. But in general, an organizations like X-Cures, which you brought up earlier, they're great. I consider those guys almost to be a Sherpa for cancer patients, guiding them and carrying them along the way because there's so much data out there now 
that it's, it's, it's impossible for the patients and frankly, it's impossible for a lot of the physicians at this point to keep it up is. with it. So having a group like that, that really helps guide you to the best possible treatment and they'll, um, in general, they'll try to find the closest locations with clinical trials that are appropriate, or if there's a standard of care st uh, therapy that's available, they'll lead you that way. So reach out to X-Cures, and there's other organizations like them to help guide you. There are, yeah. Leukemia Lymphoma Society is really good on, on malignant yeah. meme cases with the CAR-T and all that stuff. They, they really help catalog and, and get you to places. So, you know, it, you're exactly right. It is, I don't think any oncologist in good faith can say I'm up to date on every mutation in every cancer type like to know right you need AI we have AI nobody's saying let AI replace the doctor by any means but if I had a calculator and I had pencil and pen I'm sure there's some people like I don't need a calculator I'm gonna do it by hand but it's like bro use use the calculator <laughs> like it's just faster like it's more accurate and it's just faster yeah it's uh, same concept it's fun on in almost the way we train oncologists it, it's a sea change there too because ultimately you wind up specializing I, I go to some of the large academic centers and they're people they really focus on breast cancer or triple negative breast cancer there's no reason why they would know about a precision matter immediately that's being developed in a totally different cancer that may be targeting the mutation that's in theirs but it's very rare in breast cancer so right. having someone guides it's like hey you know there's whatever this rip k4 mutation that is in a lot of prostate but no breast but your patient's an outlier and would probably benefit Things like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it can connect dots that are otherwise hard to see. Yeah. And it goes back to what we started with the podcast in a beautiful full circle that was unscripted. Just so <laughs> was. But like about, like about the stuff that you, you, know, you all are putting out there, but the delivery. And I, to me, that's the biggest tragedy. It's like I can, you know, I can have, I guess, we can all have the grace to say there are things that we have yet to figure out in cancer. What's much more difficult or a harder pill to swallow is we have the stuff and it's not being delivered. And it's because, and we have resources to make sure it gets delivered and they're not being used. And that's what breaks my heart and keeps me up. Right. And on social media, I think it's very sobering and disillusioning. So Dr. Hood, we could talk all day. I'm sure your time is extremely expensive. <laughs> I'm just kidding, <laughs> half kidding. But, uh, but I appreciate you so much. And um, I will definitely be uh, sure to circle back with my patient and hopefully be high-fiving about the patch one. She's going to be very grateful. She's very near to, dear to my heart. So thank you for everything. Thank you, Sanjay. It's been great spending time with you, and I'm really impressed how good a doc you are. Having that level of concern for your patients is very impressive. Thank you.